you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. And today joining me here is the fabulous Simon Dowling. Now, Simon is a leading thinker on creating collaborative teams and workplaces. He's a man that speaks to my heart in terms of the work that he's doing. He's a speaker, facilitator, and educator that works really closely with many leaders and teams from around Australia in terms of building strong and highly engaged teams. What's fascinating about Simon, though, is his background. He began his career as a commercial lawyer. He's also an experienced improviser, which will be coming on to talk talk about shortly and regularly performing with leading improvisation company Impro in Melbourne and he was a regular cast member on Working Dogs hit TV show Thank God You're Here. He's now the MD of training and development company uh, to engage. He's got nearly two decades of experience of working with senior execs and it's an absolute joy to welcome you here today. Hi Simon. Yay! Hello, Janine. <laughs> I've finally got some time in your calendar because you've just been down at Phillip Island enjoying that wonderful home that you've built down there. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's beautiful at this time of the year. Springtime, sunshine's just coming out, oh. tempting you down to the beach. It's a beautiful place. So anyone that's listening outside of Australia, Phillip Island is down in Melbourne, isn't it? It's down the coast. Yeah, it's down, down on the... Uh, the, I'm trying to get my directions right. It's east of Melbourne um, and down on the, the coast uh, alongside Western Port Bay. And it's, yeah, it's, um, it's an island that sports Victoria's only north-facing surf beach. Just a really? little bit of trivia there for you, Cat Bay. And doesn't it have penguins there? I remember as a child going down there to watch the fairy penguins. Yeah, everyone goes down to Phillip Island for the penguins. <laughs> but it's, it, it's every day at like 3 o'clock there is this... A uh, caravan of buses and coaches filled with tourists coming just to see the penguins, and then and can I tell you, it is actually worth it. It is. We went recently with the kids, and it is a really special thing watching all these penguins slowly. You know, we talk about collaboration. These penguins come up in little little groups out of the surf onto the beach, and then they look around to see whether there are any other penguins coming up at the same time. And if there's not, they retreat back into the surf. And then they come up again and then they check out the numbers and then they all sort of eyeball each other and then they go back into the surf and then they come back out with the next wave. And when there's enough of them, they do a mad scramble across the beach. Much like business or much like we're trying to do in business. Yeah, it's every day in most, <laughs> most organisations, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> now, tell me, uh, what did you want to be uh, when you grew up? What was it, Simon, when you think back all those years, which aren't that many, what did you want to be when you grew up? Ooh, well, there were two phases to this. The very first thing I remember wanting to be was a bricklayer. Um, and that was because there was uh, some people building a new fence outside our house, which was made of brick. Yeah. And uh, I just loved the look of yeah, such, such a rewarding task, building a fence brick by brick and putting that cement in. It probably appealed to the perfectionist streak in me. 
Um, but then uh, that was probably preschool age. And then once I was at school, I got to a point where I wanted to be two things. I wanted to be a teacher yeah. and I wanted to be an actor. Wow. And you and ended was, up being a lawyer. Yeah, and then I ended up in the law. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you reckon that played out? <laughs> I, I did love it in your introduction when you said, Simon has a fascinating background. He, he was a commercial lawyer. And I thought those two things don't normally sit together in an intro. <laughs> lawyer um, and improv. How did that play out? I, so I, I dearly wanted to be, well, both of those really. And at school, it was a bit of a tragedy. I sort of talked with other teachers at school about the careers conversations that you have and said oh, I really would like to be a teacher and pretty much every teacher and every careers counselor I spoke to said uh-uh, no teacher that's that's not what successful students from our school go on to do becoming teachers um, so there was that very first strong kind of cultural message that teaching is not a chosen career which mm. I think is a real tragedy and then there was the second piece of uh, acting, which is, well, for a lot of people in my family, well, that's not, that's not a career either. You've got to get your degree first and have at least something you can fall back on. So apparently the rest of the world thought neither of those were sensible choices. So I ended up taking what appeared to be the sensible choice and the thing that my marks allowed me to do, which was to go and study law, which is what I dutifully did. And how did it work out? Because so it's like two ends of the spectrum, isn't it? Teaching and acting and then becoming a lawyer. One seems to be highly, highly creative and one end very structured, but that could just be my assumption. Yeah, look, I think the best lawyers are probably very creative people and the best actors also have a structured method to the way they work and as well to, to manage. And I think that's probably true for most things is to have the ability to operate at both ends of the spectrum and in fact weave them together and I think for that reason I'm almost pleased things turned out the way they did in other words I went and practiced as a lawyer for six years um, developed that as my professional background I suppose um, but then really have looped back into embracing my passion for both the idea of teaching which is a huge part of the work I do, teaching adults more than children, though, and uh, performing and the creative side of things. And that's something I draw heavily on in the work I do as well. And I, I suspect what I'm doing now is the kind of career, as is the case for so many people, that you couldn't have designed when you were back at school and really only happened as a, you know, a function or a snowball effect of some of the choices that you make. What do you think being a lawyer for six years taught you? What are you pulling on now from that experience? I think at the simplest level, just the way the corporate world works, the, the way a um, commercially focused large organisation operates, the, the challenges and the mechanics of, of um, pulling together a whole bunch of people to work under a common roof and with a common goal and to make money and to try and keep them engaged while you do it. The, the weird complexity of that, I don't think I ever would have understood fully if I hadn't had the opportunity to work in that environment for quite a while and have a chance to manage some people while I was doing it. Mm. Um, and 
also, if, if that was then the context within which I was working, then there was the work itself, which is perhaps understanding kind of the commercial complexities of business through, uh, you know, the sorts of stuff I was doing was um, commercial focused. It was um, agreement making, mergers and acquisitions. So we were always caught in the midst of negotiations between large organisations trying to work out how to make things work. And so you got to see things at the front line, learnt some jargon along the way, how, how the commercial world, world talks. And that, I think, is a, is a really important thing in my kit bag for the work that I do today because most of my clients are those sorts of businesses and organisations. And I think the, what I'm grateful for is that that experience has given me you know, an insight and understanding into how they work. Mm. Now, before we talk about the work that you're doing now, talk to me a bit about this improv part of Simon. When did you discover that again? Did you were you always doing it throughout your career, or did you go back to it at some point recently? Um, I well, I discovered it at uni. Um, so I, I was studying as well as my law degree. I was just studying a, um, an arts degree with a major in performing arts. Wow. And so that was my way of keeping alive my interest in performing and acting. But it was in that context that I discovered improvisation in the form of a, of a famous format called theatre sports. And I started doing a lot of that because uh, it seemed probably the easiest thing to do, particularly once I had started working as a lawyer, the easiest thing to do that kept my hand in performing without needing to be involved in you know, hours and hours of rehearsal and night after night of consecutive performances in shows. So it meant that I could keep my performing alive, but suddenly it wasn't using scripts anymore. It was improvised. So it was all making stuff up on the spot. Um, and I was a you know, regular performer in improv for a good, the, the first, I don't know, 12 to 15 years of my career. Um, and then pulled back on it when I did two things, started my own business, which was in 2012, and at which stage we were having our second, we've just had our second child as well, our youngest son, Sam. And so he, he just brought, well, those two things brought a whole new level of complexity to life. Um, so I had to pull back on something. So I, I, I kind of pulled back from improv for a good five, six years. Um, and only in the last two or three years have really started to, to focus and lean into it more heavily. What is it that you love about the improv? Oh, gosh, so many things. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love personally about it is that it really acts as a beautiful foil to um, my very logical tendency to like to think things through and plan things out very carefully. So by nature, there's a good part of me that is very cautious mm. and likes to be very careful about what you do and what you say and to manage the risks in doing that. Improv forces you to let go of that censoring brain a little mm. and to just be in the moment and to play and to be to back yourself more around, you know, what you say is not going to ruin the scene, it's not going to ruin the moment, uh, and to play with it. And therefore it just puts that, I call it the dirty, rotten planning brain, puts it aside and quells it while you get on and play. 
And I think it's really important to have both. Mm. Improv itself I love because it just delights audiences. Like every time I'm in an audience or I'm performing in a show, just to see the joy that it brings to people, to watch people play around in the spontaneous to what an audience can seem like a really risky and dangerous thing. Um, I just, yeah, I love that. You talked about the dirty, rotten planning brain and mentioned this concept of allowing yourself to play. How do, how do you see those two elements playing out in your corporate work that you do, in your training work that you do? Uh, it's a great, great question. I, I, I tend to think a lot of the work that I'm doing is focused on how do you help people to collaborate more effectively, work together more effectively, to work in teams more effectively, to, to be a leader and, and help people to feel connected to you as a leader, building trust, all of those things. I reckon one of the things that stands in people's way most, most more than anything uh, in being successful in that is just their own tendency to either stick to a script of what they're supposed to say and do uh, or perhaps it's a fear of saying the wrong thing or not meeting people's expectations around what good leaders are supposed to say uh, or just not having the courage to let go and allow for the possibility that they don't know the answers themselves. Mm. And I reckon Improv is the perfect antidote for that, funnily enough, um, to develop those skills of being able to let go and to listen and to truly notice what's happening in a conversation. Uh, in a, say, you know, you're in a team meeting in an organisation, how often do people in meetings say things in meetings that go unnoticed or unrecognised for what they truly are because everyone else is sticking to the agenda of what they want to say or need to say in the meeting? And so you see all these... Know, unwanted, uh, unmet needs and wants flying around in meetings. Whereas if we were to truly realise the possibility of those meetings where people are co-creating some glorious stuff, they have to be able to really notice and listen to that stuff. Again, I think that's what improvisers do really well and that's why I like to draw quite a lot on the principles and the skills of improv in a lot of the work I do. I reckon there's lots of people listening right now that are nodding their heads um, on two of the key things that you said. One about uh, linked to this fear of, of what they're supposed to be doing in terms of their work or their behaviour. And the, the point you made about digging deep and having the courage to let go. For those people that uh, are nodding their heads, what sort of tips would you give them? What advice would you give them to get over that fear or that um, dip, digging deeper and finding that courage to to become who it is that they want to be, so that they can collaborate and connect better at work. Hmm. Well, I reckon the first of them has to be to slow down. In other words, I think in the face of that fear, sometimes our most common tendency and this is you know this is classic me right if i'm if i'm um in any environment that i feel uncomfortable in my tendency will be to speak faster uh or to try to steer the agenda 
Now, if you're like me, one of the things I would say is slowing down has to be your friend. Because by slowing down, you do two things. You notice in yourself some of the choices that you're making. So I think part of it is training yourself to notice your tendencies to jump in. Or perhaps your tendency is the opposite. It's to, it's to go quiet. But to notice that really carefully and make observations about it is, is important. But then the second thing is to notice what others are doing when you do slow down. Like what happens when you allow others to fill in a silence, when you create space for others to participate in the conversation. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the first thing I'd probably say. That then brings with it, a second question, which is, and this is one of my favourite things that I learnt as an improviser um, as a little catch cry, which is we were always taught as improvisers to ask, what does the show need? Like, what does this moment need? What does, what does this scene need right now? What does the audience need? Not what do you want to do, what do you, what, not what do you feel you should do, but what does the show need right now? And I think we can apply that same principle to any environment or context where you've got multiple people engaging with one another, whether it's a meeting or whether it's um, a one-on-one conversation, perhaps it's a difficult conversation, to actually pause and say, what does this moment need right now? Even better, and if you're really uncertain and you're sort of concerned about the fear that will lead to, is, um, is to ask the other person, to say it out loud, say, hey, what's, what's the best thing that, we could be doing in this conversation right now or what's the most useful thing I could be doing? Uh, And what that does is I think it asks people in conversations with you or in interactions with you to actually co-create with you rather than it feeling like it's you versus me and shifting that energy I I think is really, really important. Mm -hmm. I love that. What does this moment need right now? Have you got an example of where you've either done that yourself and created a shift or pivot in that conversation or even in some of the work that you've done where you've challenged the team, the people, the leaders to do that and where it's worked? Yeah, I've got a a couple of examples of flying through my mind. I'm just thinking which is the the most elegant to share. I I, I think um, the one I wanted to, my gut's telling me to share, is one I had uh, a couple of months ago. I was working with an um, executive leadership team and it was an offsite focused on, and the whole purpose of the offsite was focused on them, them as a team, them, how they work together as a group, as an ensemble, some of the challenges they faced around that. And my primary role on that day is to facilitate them in having their conversation. So I'm there to help shape the process and keep the conversation going. And there was one point in the day, the, 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 we were at a point in the day where the focus was on some of, the, some of the ways they wanted to work together specifically as a team and they were trying to set themselves some, some rules of the road. And a couple of the team members had been talking there about um, uh, the way in which they wanted to run a particular type of meeting. And then there were others in the room who said, no, we don't like that idea of changing the meeting. We think the current structure is just fine as it is. And that led to then suddenly quite an 
um, animated discussion in the group that went much bigger than the meetings, but more around the expectations they had on how much time they would give to one another. And a couple of the folks in the room got quite heated about it. Now, at a certain point, I, as the facilitator, my spidey senses start tingling at that point, and I start thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, you know, how do I best turn this conversation to a constructive one? What do we do right now? And I think for a lot of facilitators, the tendency at that point, and I've definitely got this voice in my head, is to either try and say, all right, let's bring it back to the agenda. Let's look at our timing. Or the other might be to... uh, almost completely ignore it, park lot, put it on a parking lot and try and move forward. Um, Or the other might be to just go completely quiet. Um, What I did at that moment was um, just pull myself back for a moment. So it was almost that piece, that idea I was talking about earlier, which was to slow down. And I paused the group and I said, hey, guys, I, I don't know where this conversation really is at because you understand the context of this a lot better than I do right now. I've just got one question and that is what is the best thing that I could be doing right now as a facilitator? Because to be honest with you, I'm not sure how to best contribute or how to best shape this conversation right now. What do you need from me? And I remember thinking I had broken a sheet of glass in front of them at that moment because everybody just suddenly looked at me and there was this long protracted silence. And one of them then in the middle of that silence said, you know what, I think what this has highlighted is that there's a whole bunch of questions for us around what kind of team that we really are, Simon. We're stuck in talking about how we use our time do you reckon you could take us back to a conversation of what kind of team we want to be? And I turned to the others and said, does that, does that seem a useful thing to do? And one of the things we're trained to do as improvisers is to almost look at the people's eyes and say, are you inspired by that? And just by looking around the room, you could see really quickly that people's eyes were inspired by the idea of, yeah, I think that's the question. And suddenly at that point for me as a facilitator, it became really easy. Now, what I needed to do was to take them to the conversation they wanted to have most. But by asking them the question, it pushed the responsibility back to them to define that. That's, that's fascinating. And how, um, how you can almost see how that can play out in everyday working life. Um, you know, from your experience, how does that relate to that um, when you think about the organisations that you work with or the challenge that leaders are having or people are having right now in that working environment where you're almost going round and round in circles and not moving forward? What, what again, could people do um, to get that shift that you created in that room that day? Well, is it just... Is it just a case of, of pausing and saying, hey, well, let's take a couple of minutes, folks, and or maybe it's take, take an hour or maybe it's take a week to think about what's the most useful conversation we could be having right now. And I don't think leaders do enough of that, putting it back to groups or putting it back to teams and saying, what, what is the most important question we could be asking right now? What is the most important debate we could be having right now? And ask that group to help come up with the answer to that question, to devise its own direction. And to not overlead, I think there's, there's this wonderful expression, the idea I like of leadership by letting go. And it's knowing basically when to shut up and to hand the microphone to others. And I think for a lot of leaders, that's a skill to be practised and learned. 
It's probably why I also send a lot of leaders off to do improv training with improv groups because I think it's a great, great kind of set of skills to learn and to get comfortable with the idea of letting go, that the whole thing's not going to break. I think even that concept of leadership by letting go is requires a significant amount of courage and bravery. Yeah. Yeah. Where does that come from? You talk a lot about um, the challenge right now around creating cultures of collaboration and connectedness. From your perspective, Simon, and experience, why do you think collaboration and connectedness are, are important parts of building culture that people want to be part of? Two big reasons, I think. One, one is, um, start with a very human one, people want it. We, we spend an awful lot of time in our workplaces um, and the expectations more than ever from, from both the workplace is that we will bring all kinds of creative thinking to the table, discretionary efforts, we'll bring an emotional aspect to our work. It's not, we're not just rocking up to pull levers and push buttons for, for, most, for the most part. We're there to also think how can we help solve problems. And if that's what workplaces are asking of us, then we also want to be involved and to be able to participate in decisions in the way they're made. So I think that puts a lot of emphasis then on creating cultures where people can feel they are part of the mix, they are part of the conversation, they're part of a community of people who are doing great work. I think we also want it for just purely social reasons, like we spend so much time at work, we want to feel connected with the people we work with. Um, there's a huge emphasis on workplaces being places that are aligned with our personal values as well. And I think that also comes through answering the question, well, who am I working with? Who am I, who am I sharing a space with here? And are they people that I want to share a space with? So there's that first need, the human need. The second, I would say, is that it goes to this thread around the problems that we're trying to solve the challenges that we're facing are increasingly complex and involve challenges that are themselves coming about through people's hyperconnectedness. Like you take a large organisation, for most organisations now, their customers are hyperconnected. Their customers are able to collaborate more than ever. Um, you see examples where customers can launch campaigns against the large companies that once would have been able to dominate and be the Goliath. Suddenly it's the customers who are able to, through Twitter or through um, Facebook or through Instagram, they can create a really collaborative um, voice and stand up and stand strong in the media themselves and create all kinds of change. You see it. I mean, there was a recent example of this last year in a school community, or was it earlier this year, in a school community here in Melbourne, one of um, the private schools, Trinity Grammar, had um, had dismissed its uh, deputy headmaster from memory. And the uprising and the voice that the parent and the school community put together to um, protest against that decision was huge. It ended up in the media. It was a massive story. And a big part of the way they were able to rally that voice of the school community was through the use of social media to do so really quickly. Within the space of 24 hours, the whole community had banded together. So I think for that reason, organisations themselves need to be really good 
at ensuring that their own organisations are super collaborative and super super connected in order to be able to solve and address those kinds of problems, to listen to the market and to learn from it, to respond quickly to it. And I, I think um, the concept of collaboration and connectedness is one that um, is being talked about quite a lot. I'm curious, Simon, do you believe that... Um, the depth of collaboration and connectedness we are seeing yet? Or do you believe it's it's a bit of a word that we are almost band-aiding within organisations or that leaders are trying to make happen? Um, so have we solved it or have we still got a long way to go? I reckon we've got a long way to go. A long way might be overstating it. But I think what's happened is we've put it up there as an ideal and a lot of leaders and organisations have jumped at it and gone, yeah, that seems really important. We'll put it as one of our values. We'll stick it up on the wall. We'll run collaboration sessions. And there's a whole bunch of people who have jumped on board with that as an idea. And there's perhaps a whole bunch that have rolled their eyes and gone, oh, God, can't I just get on and do my work? But the result of that is perhaps that we've seen an overuse of the word collaboration as an example. Uh, in such a way that people don't really know what is expected of them and what it means. So suddenly collaboration becomes this word that represents the ideal that we should all work together with one another and help one another on everything in the business. And then that gets suddenly translated into we should be involved in every decision, which suddenly gets translated into everything should be decided through consensus and consultation. And suddenly before we know it, the organisation is getting weighed down or bogged down in this endless need to consult and to collaborate and to build consensus with everybody on everything. And that's exhausting, it's inefficient, uh, and it leads to this overloading of collaboration. I, I, I call it the collaboration trap, where we sort of get stuck in this cycle of suddenly feeling like we have to involve everyone in everything. Whereas, in fact, I think perhaps one of the most important aspects of uh, building a strong collaboration culture is knowing when and where to set boundaries and when to say no. Uh, in other words, collaboration is a choice between you and me to invest our energy in an initiative or a project because we feel that doing it together is going to yield a better outcome than either of us doing it alone. But in making that decision, we're probably also going to decide to take our energy away from something else. So we better be really clear about what it is that I ask you, Janine, to get involved in and what you say yes to. Otherwise, I'll be distracting you from your other stuff. So I think organisations need to get better at, and this is the work that needs to happen, at defining what exactly does collaboration mean, when and where should collaboration happen, and when and why should you say no to collaboration? How do we avoid it getting stuck in this world of consensus? I love that concept of world of consensus. I think uh, I think we're seeing a lot of people who are either in that world of consensus or equally in a world of conformity of doing what they think they should be doing because it's expected. In your in your world, how do you make sure that you are making the right decisions uh, of where to collaborate and where to connect? So, how do you live and breathe everything that you're talking about yourself? Yeah, that's such a timely question. I, <laughs> I, you know, I think the probably the 
the honest answer to that is I went to the collaboration trap first. So I first of all, when I started up my own business, every time anyone said, hey, Simon, we should grab a coffee. Hey, you and I should collaborate on something. Um, in the quest to build my business, I just said yes. So I found myself participating in everyone's projects and every decision that people wanted to make, working together with people on things and finding myself very quickly part of projects and working with people that I really didn't feel was a good use of my time at all. And then the corollary of that was, you know, that took my energy and effort away from other initiatives and projects that I should have been working on. So then the pendulum swung (laughs) and I went to a world of pretty much saying no to every opportunity to collaborate. Um, Now, I'm over the last 12 months in particular really focusing heavily on trying to work out, well, how and when do we decide what to collaborate on? And what I use is a really simple matrix to assess any opportunity. Um, It's got four questions attached to it and I encourage organisations to um, kind of equip their teams with a similar kind of matrix to this. And the questions are uh, basically why, what, how and who. So the why question is why would I collaborate on this? What would be the benefit that it yields that is better for me than using this energy myself, than working alone? The what question is if this collaboration was successful, what would the result be? What would it yield? What would good look like? Uh, The who question is, well, who needs to be involved in this? And what would each of their roles be and what expertise are they bringing to the table? And how is, what would be the mechanisms of us collaborating effectively on this? Mm. Uh, And what I do is I use those four sets of questions as a way of not just privately assessing an opportunity but actually having a conversation with somebody about, well, if we are going to collaborate, let's work through these four sets of questions together. And we both need to feel comfortable that the answers stack up. And, of course, that only works if you've also got a clear sense of, and I think this is where things went wrong early for me, which is if you haven't got a clear sense of what you're trying to build in your business in the first instance, then it's very hard to answer those questions meaningfully. Um, so the clearer you become about what you're trying to do, then the more, you, the, more, the more brutal you can be about what you say yes and no to. Yeah. There's as much power in saying no, isn't there? What, what have you become better at saying no to? Um, phew. Um, what have I become better at saying no to I've become better at saying no to um, random coffees (laughs) so I don't know you probably find this Janine but when you're working uh, on your own or your brand is your own I think people assume you've got an awful lot of spare time to sit around and drink coffee or to help, you know, inspire one another through the act of having coffee. And, of course, there's, there's an absolute value of that. Don't get me wrong. But you've got to be really careful about how and when you use the time to do that. Well, it comes back to this, this energy piece that you talked about where uh, you've got to get really clear on where you are investing, in your, investing your energy and getting, getting the best return from it. Well, yeah. And, you know, and saying that, which actually leads to the second part of the answer I was going to give you, which is saying no to stuff that just doesn't inspire me. Mm. Like, again, this, is, this goes back to that improv training I had, but we used to play these games and exercises with each other where the whole point was to inspire one another mm. on stage. And 
your aim was to look at the other person in the eyes and to see whether or not you were inspiring them. And if they, if they didn't feel inspired, their job was to simply say, look at you with a big smile on their face and say, nope, to give you what we called the happy no. No, I don't think so. Nah. And then your job was to come up with another idea to see if you could inspire them again. But the, the skill or the training in that is to become attuned to when people are inspired, when your heart and your energy is switched on, which is exactly your point that you make. So if, if I don't feel inspired by something, to be honest about that, and rather than doing it because of obligation or a sense of commitment, um, to only do it because you want to. So what keeps, what keeps you going, Simon, in terms of the work and the impact that you are putting out there in terms of um, the impact on the planet, other people, leaders, etc. What keeps you going? Yeah, it's a great question to reflect on because I think, I mean, you use the word impact. I think that what keeps me going is, is knowing and hearing when people talk about the kinds of conversations that they struggle with in their organisations or in their workplaces or more often than not, it might not be about the types of conversations, but just their experience of work. When I reflect back on my own time practicing as a lawyer, I was in a commercial law firm. If I keep reflecting on my own, the way I, I remember that time, I remember it by reflecting on the human experience of work, what it was like to be an employee in an organization in this weird web of relationships. And when people talk about work today, if I'm chatting with them over a barbecue or a dinner party or asking them, hey, what do you do? What's it like? Typically, their response comes back to not just the work that they do, but what it's like to work in their organisation, whether they feel loved and respected by their colleagues, whether they feel like they enjoy working with their team. I think that is so important at a really human and emotional level for people to feel that sense of human satisfaction in their work they're doing. And... I like to think that a huge aspect of what I do is about improving that human experience of work in every client I work with. That combined with, hey, when you deliver a workshop, I mean, for me, every time I come out of working with a team or delivering a workshop or giving a presentation at a conference and you see people laughing and playing and feeling liberated and like they can have some fun with what they do and be more themselves in the conversations they're having. That keeps me going for months, just seeing that kind of reaction. I love it. And what does this concept of unleashing brilliance mean to you? I reckon unleashing brilliance. See, I have a... a, a, a strange, one part of me has a strange relationship or even reaction to the word brilliance is I think for too many of us, people filter what they do through this lens of is it good enough? Am I brilliant enough? Am I good enough? And I reckon the whole paradox of unleashing brilliance is to say just dig deep into who you are, understand what makes you tick, what lights you up. And then just play with it, do more of it, bring the full version of you to the table, allow people to see you for what you uniquely do and play. Mm. Put a smile on your face and have fun with that. 
Don't worry about whether it's someone else's script of what brilliant looks like. Don't worry about whether it's following an invisible rule book. Don't worry about whether it gets you the next promotion. Because I think by worrying about all those things, ironically, we get in our own way. We don't get close to what others might one day describe as brilliant. Oh, I love all that. Um, Exactly what I um, talk about in terms of there's too many people pretending to either be something that they're not or living that life that they actually don't want to be living. And if we can tap back into what it is that they're passionate about, what lights them up, then the people around them and the planet will benefit, which is, which is why it's so important to share our stories. My final question for you today is we're often asked, you know, what is it that you want to be or what do you want to become? My, my question, the thing that I'm fascinated by is who do you, Simon, want to be remembered for? Mm. Who do I want to be remembered for? I, I, yeah, gosh, I, I trip at the word who do you want to be remembered for because part of me, it, it, it almost feels more like what do I want to be remembered for? I, I, what I want to be remembered for is giving people the license, giving people the freedom to be the best version of themselves or not even the best, to just be the most honest and authentic version of themselves. I want people and groups that I work with to feel like, hey, when we had, when we did some work with Simon or when we had a conversation with Simon, I felt like we could get get to the truth of things. Um, I think that's what I want to be remembered for, allowing people to talk truth and get to truth and to connect in the true sense as human beings. Mm. Simon, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend this last bit of time chatting to you. Um, there's a few things I want to pick up on. Um, I'm going to ask our listeners to ask themselves whether their own dirty, rotten planning brain is getting in the way of them becoming the best version of themselves. Are they actually living a life according to a script or making decisions according to a script? When actually, in your words, if they ditch that script, there may be a likelihood that they can connect and collaborate better than ever before. I love your insight in terms of this concept of slowing down can actually be your friend. And the mastery in the simple question of what does this moment need right now, I think um, is a human question and equally one that's very brave and courageous and creates the space uh, for things to move in whatever direction the collective force wants to go. And so I love that. And the other thing that's really clear for me um, that you talk a lot about is this human experience of work, Um, whether it be about leaders letting go, um, whether it be about creating cultures of collaboration and connectedness, but this whole human experience of work and individually digging deep to do more of what you love, I think is, is really powerful. And a huge thank you for your four-question decision, decision matrix. I reckon many of our listeners 
where who are being challenged with collaborating or being put in a, a room to work together or suddenly they're on a project together there's questions of why would I collaborate on this what does success look like should we uh, work on it who needs to be involved and what are we all bringing to the table and then how are we going to operate what's the mechanism that we're going to use to operate is equally a wonderful gift so Thank you so much, Simon. It's been a great conversation. And I know many of our listeners are going to get a whole heap of genius from you. How can they get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Oh, well, thanks so much, Janine. It's been such a treat, this. Um, they can get in touch with me. Um, they can jump on my website, simondowling.com.au, um, and contact me through there. They can jump on, jump on and check out my LinkedIn profile as well, um, Simon Dowling on LinkedIn. Um, uh, yeah, so they're probably the two easiest ways to find me. Awesome. Until next time, you have a wonderful time down in Melbourne and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks again, Simon. Thanks so much, Janine. It's been a joy. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.